if people want to grow their businesses, they need to do it outside of the dependency on government and focusing more on, on doing the work themselves. Are you looking for vital information? Find it in this podcast segment on reports. In an age of visual fatigue, lend me your ears. Stats and data easily broken down for you. With your host, Aggie Patricia Terwamli. Shout out to Zachary Abdurrahman for working on this audio. Today's report is ICTD's Working Pepper by Waiswa Ronald and Rukundo Solomon. It's the strategic investment tax incentives in Africa. The focus is the case of tax holidays in Uganda. So dear listener, if you'd like to follow this conversation, go to the show notes below and you'll find a link to the report. So some of you might have already read this paper already, but here we are. We're now bringing it to you in audio form. So Solomon, we're very privileged to have you today. He's a lawyer and a manager somewhere else who'll be telling us about. But for the past seven years, he was a supervisor in the rulings and interpretations unit of the business policy division of Uganda Revenue Authority. That's a URA. You understand why this context was very important later on in the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Solomon. Thank you very much. It's quite a pleasure to be here. Tell us exactly what were the primary objectives of this report? There have actually been a number of, of studies on um, tax holidays and tax exemptions and uh, tax expenditures. Yes. All those three things uh, mean almost the same thing, but different aspects of the same thing and viewed from different aspects. One of the things we noticed, uh, that is Ronald and I, was that there was a bit of confusion and lack of clarity regarding what exactly are the tax holidays and and how they are distinct from the exemptions and how they are distinct from tax expenditures. And also, most of the previous studies focused a lot on the numbers. That is the the quantities, how much is lost through exemptions, how much, that kind of thing. So most of the previous reports were not covering the politics of it, Mm -hmm. the history, the politics to sort of contextualize the issue of tax holidays, what the history is, have they always been a part of the system? Are they new to the system? What impact do they have in the system? That is the tax system. How are they viewed politically? If everyone seems to speak out against them, then why do they persist? You know, questions like that. Because for especially from around 2016, there has been a lot of talk about tax exemptions and right. tax holidays. And so we wanted to contextualize the issue in its actual historical and factual metrics. Right. And I mean, just like any other country, Uganda has these incentives. We can bring in more investment into Uganda. So what are the key findings of this research? You had alluded to, I no longer work at the Uganda Revenue Authority. Now uh, I'm working at uh, Grand Thornton. It's an an audit firm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm I'm a a lawyer. My colleague, Ronald Weiswa, was a supervisor at the time. So I left URA in July of last year. At the time uh, we wrote this paper, we've, we've done the research over, actually over years. We'd, mm. We've been working on this paper for some time. He was a supervisor in research as well. He has actually left URA this year. He's now working for the Africa Tax Administrators Forum, ETAF, in Pretoria. Okay. Though we're still collaborating on some research. So what led to, to this was that over the years in the URA, uh, we had seen the challenge of tax exemptions coming up and the way the public was discussing it. And even in uh, what you would consider, you know, the sort of sophisticated circles, like say at the Ministry of Finance, in uh, in Parliament, people who should know better, they seem not to understand 
what they were dealing with exactly. Starting from 2020, there was the tax expenditure report. Let me talk about the three things I've talked about. Okay. Uh, tax ex- exemptions, tax expenditures, and tax holidays. So a tax expenditure is in any form when you pay less than what you would have paid ordinarily. Okay. So if if the ordinary tax rate maybe is 30% and you pay 10%, you are allowed by law, you're being allowed to pay 10% or 5% or 0%, that is when it's exempt, then that's a tax expenditure. It's an expenditure because the government is spending on you through the tax system. By taxing you less than they would have, that, that amount that you keep has been spent on you. So it's to consider a tax expenditure. So and beginning who nobody gets this? Different people get it. We all get it in some form. Yeah. So, for example, in VAT, mm. there is supposed to be VAT, on, or ideally there is VAT on all goods and services in the country, yes. but some of them are exempt. For example, education services, schools, you don't pay VAT when you pay for your school fees. So that's a form of tax expenditure. Agriculture is exempt from VAT. So that's a form of tax expenditure. By It, it, it keeps the price lower than it would have been if VAT were there. But also, these specific businesses could get those tax expenditures. For example, investors who invest, depending on the amounts, like in the hotel sector, $8 million. Mm. If you invest, eight, uh, set up a hotel of $8 million and it can house 100 guests, there is a certain provision of the law where you will not pay certain VAT on certain uh, items, goods and services. You know, there are different types of investments. They will qualify for different t- treatment. Basically, tax expenditure is the broader form of it. Okay. Then you come down to tax exemptions. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, tax expenditures could just be a lower rate, yeah. meaning that you still pay tax, but at a, at a reduced rate. And there are examples of that in the law, especially income tax. So, for example, in income tax, you could find ordinarily the withholding tax rate for non-residents who are providing services could be is 15%. Mm-hmm. But under double taxation agreements, say with uh, the Netherlands, for some withholding tax rates, it's 10%. So that difference between uh, 15 and 10 is a, a form of tax expenditure. Exactly. And now we have exemptions. So mm-hmm. exemptions are where you do not pay any tax. Just like education could be exempt. Incidentally, just for information purposes, between 2008 and 2014, schools were exempt from income tax. The income that they were earning, the income of police, of prisons, of UPDF, they are all exempt from income tax. So those are broadly exemptions. People don't pay tax. But then you come down, you narrow down further to the tax holidays. And these are the ones for the incentives. So the law provides right now for a 10-year income tax holiday for investors who meet certain criteria. If it's a foreigner, if they invest $10 million in certain selected sectors, such as agro-processing, assembling of motor vehicles and certain selected sectors, they would qualify for a 10-year income tax holiday, meaning they don't pay taxes for a 10-year period. Now, what we were focusing on was that specifically, the one of the tax investor holidays. Yes. Yes, and we were narrowing it down to that because when in the general public, as well as, as I've told you, even in parliament, even in at the Ministry of Finance, even in all kinds of places, even at the URA, when people are talking about uh, holiday, tax holidays, tax exemptions, they tend to conflate all the three things I've described. What were your unexpected results as you carried out this research? The One of the most interesting things was that Uganda has had tax holidays before. Yes. That was very fascinating. And we found that uh, historically in the 90s to the late mid to late 90s, there were uh, tax holidays in the statutes. The income, the law, the main law used to be the income tax decree. Yes. And that uh, they were very broad. The, the Minister of Finance had powers to exempt anyone, basically, any income that he chose. Uh, there had been a, a set criteria that it, if it's a foreigner, they invest 300,000 US dollars. 
they get a, a five year or six year, depending if varied tax holiday. And uh, if it is a citizen, $50,000. So in 1997, when the Income Tax Act came in and 1996, when the VAT Act came in, and then 1999, they amended the customs laws and the Investment Code Act. All tax holidays were removed mm-hmm. from the law, explicit mm-hmm. tax holidays. Why, why was, were they removed? Because they, it was considered that they were largely being abused. It was difficult for the sort of the ordinary Munduawansi to access them. The way of accessing them was not known publicly. It, and, and what's ironic is that almost everything I'm saying now can be said about the current holidays. Yeah. That they are, it's like a, a reflection of back what it was back then. So mm-hmm. there was considerable abuse. It was highly discretionary because the minister could exempt anyone for any amount of time and no, no one could really bind him. He had just chosen administratively to limit himself to those thresholds I've described. But otherwise, it was an unlimited exemption. It was considered that it was too highly discretionary, but also it was not clear that the cost they were incurring in losing the revenue they were losing was leading to real tangible benefit right. because there is a, a constant debate over whether tax exemptions are really beneficial. The reason being, when someone is making an investment, the tax is a factor, but it is not necessarily the most important factor because right. if we right now we would all say maybe if uh, let's say Google wants to come and set up a, a factory in Uganda or over the, a, a, a business in Uganda, Google wants to come and set up its premises in Uganda, we would say, fine, we will give you a 10-year or 20-year tax holiday. But Google still won't come because there are other factors beyond tax. Total tax holiday is still not enough. For There are countries, for example, that don't have an income tax where they don't charge income tax. United Arab Emirates, they've only just introduced it recently. In countries like Mauritius, it is close to 0%. But still, not everyone is rushing to invest there. It doesn't mean that that tax is the only factor that they consider. You have to consider availability of skilled labor. You have to consider the political climate. You have to consider the geographical location. You have to consider the market, potential for market. There are so many other factors. So the question is, when you give up revenue in tax, are you actually going to get an extra benefit or is it that this person would still have invested the way they have invested with or without a tax holiday? Right. So because of those questions, it was decided. There was also a lot of pressure from the IMF and World Bank at that time, but it was decided to let go of that, of the tax holiday. So it was quite a surprise to find that the same situation we have now had existed in the 90s, that the result had been they did away with the holidays. Right. That was quite a surprise, yeah. And what is the correlation then from the change from all the tax holidays to today's debt GDP ratio? Well, what happened then was that when the, the tax holidays were were removed, instead what was given were a, a form of ex- generous expenditures. What that means is that instead of giving someone a, a blatant tax holiday that you won't pay taxes for 10 years, instead they say, if you invest this much, you can claim it in deductions and actually claim reducing your tax liability. So people were investing. There's a 2008 uh, OECD study that reviewed the change in investment climate in Uganda after the tax holidays were removed and found that it was positive. More investors were coming because investors actually trust that kind of system, the expenditure-based incentive, because Mm -hmm. it is in their control. If they file a return, they claim the deduction as opposed to where you have to apply for a holiday. You don't know whether the person will accept, give it to you or not. You don't know what you have to pay to get it, how the means of getting it. So it was positive. However, along the way, what happened is that tax holidays crept back in without provisions of the law. They were endless uh, holidays that came in. They took the form of uh, agreements between investors and uh, the Ministry of Finance, whereby the government would enter into an agreement to pay taxes on their behalf. So government couldn't exempt 
them from tax, but could agree that they will pay on their behalf. And this happened starting from uh, 2003. There was that the, the company TriStar Apparels that came in to invest. If you remember the Agoa saga, I think I was like in high school back then, but vaguely I recall so much drama about that. There was the <laughs> yeah, even back then I I was interested in this thing. So yeah. there was there was a Bitco as well. That's 2005, and and many similar agreements, which were some of which only came to the public in 2016, came out in the public. About right. 25 companies benefited from these exemptions. And what was happening is that they were not covered by statute. They were not being properly because so because of that they were not being properly monitored. As a result, government was actually losing a great deal of revenue that could have been collected. Now that revenue had to be compensated in some. Way. Mm-hmm. So instead of collecting taxes, they were actually borrowing money. Okay. Which has led us to the position where the tax to GDP, uh, uh, debt to GDP ratio mm-hmm. has gone beyond 50%. Yes. And yet, the uh, standard accepted amount by the Ministry of Finance has always been it will never exceed. That had been a rule. It yes. would never exceed 50%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had re- reaffirmed that rule publicly in 2021. Mm-hmm. But 2022, it exceeded. Right. Uh, and so, yeah. Okay, great. So you've given us a breakdown or a journey from the 90s. How is it now? How? What are the tax holidays like? Who are they for? Yes. So what happened, as I've told you, there were these non-statutory ones. And the non-statutory ones had, there was literally no control whatsoever by, in terms of law. There was no law that provided for how you will access them. It, it was uh, anyone's guess. It was the Wild West. Uh, whoever could access the minister, the whatever criteria the minister chose to apply and when we reviewed some of the documents we found they would give people who are investing upwards of 30 million dollars and sometimes they would even give someone who is investing you know five hundred thousand dollars so there was really no criteria mm-hmm. now what happened is that in in 2016 mm-hmm. for the first time the parliament budget committee refused to pass that that expenditure because what would happen is that government would say they're going to pay taxes on behalf of certain taxpayers yes and then the, that budget expenditure had to be approved by parliament so what the government had been doing that was a little sneaky was that the taxpayers would owe huge sums. Let's say someone owes 10 billion, they're supposed to pay an income tax for a year. Government would say they're only going to clear 3 billion. And then the remaining 7 billion will accrue interest as arrears. So they would take to parliament small amounts. So if you saw what was being declared over every year, it was actually a smaller amount than what was actually owed. So uh, in coming to 2016, they, there was everything was coming to a head because of the Auditor General's uh, scrutiny, increasing scrutiny. You had uh, these uh, civil society organizations, the Tax Justice Alliance, a conglomerate of different civil society organizations, was also beginning to pay more attention. There was more media attention to it, and the URA was becoming more efficient as well. Right. And so yeah. as, as a result of all this just happening all at once, the Budget Committee uh, chose not to pass up the particular expenditure for those listed companies. There were 25 companies. And they demanded to see all the, the, the basis. There was now more scrutiny. Even the, the some of the new people in parliament, where you know, there had been some more opposition members, there had been, even among the, those who are in the government section, there were people who were now more open-minded. You know, more, There was greater scrutiny coming. Yes. Yes. So they chose not to pass it and insisted that that money should actually be paid. They questioned the basis, the legal basis, for the, these agreements between the government and the taxpayers to pay on their behalf. The budget committee said that there must be proper guidelines for how someone can access these exemptions. It can't just be anyone can you access them through whatever means. So what was done? Is it working now, their recommendation? From that recommendation, what happened was that the law was amended in 2018 mm. to introduce these statutory tax exemptions. Okay. 
So, so they were introduced within the statute, but the thresholds set were too high. In 2018, you had uh, thresholds of $100 million for foreigners. They were actually cutting across. It was $100 million cutting across whether foreigners or citizens. It was way too high. Mm. So in 2019, the law was amended again, the law on those exemptions. And maybe for those who are really curious and wish to look at them, you look at Section 21.1 AF of the Income Tax Act, Paragraph 1 PP of the VAT Act, items 22 to 26 of the excise schedule and mm -hmm. uh, item 60a of the okay. stamp duty act they were all cutting across the different laws okay. so the, the thresholds were reduced to 10 million dollars for foreigners mm -hmm. and uh, eventually in 2020 again it was reduced to then one million dollars for citizens and in 2020 it was reduced to three hundred thousand dollars for citizens Mm. And one fifty thousand dollars when the citizens invest up country, but for foreigners it's still ten million dollars. Now, what is curious though is that as the law was designed, these exemptions were not supposed to be applied for. It was supposed to be for self-executing. It's supposed to be that once you meet those conditions, you would automatically benefit from the exemption. However, for practical reasons, investors will need some kind of certainty prior to, to making the investment. They want to know that I do qualify because how do I may assume I qualify. I read the law. I think I qualify, but URA may have a different opinion. So for practical reasons, the investors have been forced to continue to apply. So they, right now, the application process, which has no basis in law, it's just an administratively created. It's just actually not even administrative. It's just practice. People just know that you have to do this because even URA has not guided that apply as such. It's just, you know, by practice. Yeah. So investors will write to the URA, declare that they are investing this amount and the conditions and, and, and trying to show that they meet the conditions. Right. And then the URA will write back affirming that, yes, if you meet these conditions, if you, then you will get, a, get the exemption. Right. However, those particular exemptions still have challenges. The challenges are, one, the fact that it involves an application is a, is a problem. Mm. and more of a manual application. Because okay. if I told you right now, write a letter to URA applying for an exemption, because mm. you have one, you're going to invest $150,000 up country, you wouldn't know what to write. Even if I gave you all the provisions of the law, even if you would not know how to go about it. What other way would they approach it? Because the way the law is designed, is supposed to be self-executing. Mm. So the alternative, the way it should be, uh, ideally, is that you should file your tax return, which shows that you meet the conditions, and thereby your income becomes exempt. Yeah. Once you've shown that you meet all the conditions of the law. The right. problem is some of the conditions are, are hard to determine from a return and they are somewhat slightly subjective. So it, it makes it for it to be done without applying some kind of application. So the alternative then would be that if there must be an application process, it should be put in the statute. Mm. Let it be statutory that you apply and there are clear timelines because, mm. for example, people have applied for these exemptions and they wait for months and it's months. A while, yeah. The information is still not publicly known because it is people like now me, I, I the, the unit incidentally, you talked about how I worked in the URA. The yeah. unit I worked in was the one that was processing these exemptions. Mm. So I have no intimate knowledge of the processes. Yeah. So those who have that kind of information are the ones who can access them. You'll yeah. find there are many citizens in Uganda because $150,000 is not very little money, but it is also not astronomical. Yeah. If five Ugandans could come together, 10 Ugandans could come together, set up a company and raise that money and make an investment. And some of them are doing this. The yeah. problem is they don't know that the businesses they have invested in actually qualify for these exemptions. Right. And the truth of, of the matter will always be as long as tax education is in the hands of the URA primarily, 
mm-hmm. and with, because things like these podcasts and you know radio talks but are not happening so much yeah. but as long as tax, tax education is in the hands of URA, URA will never invest much energy in telling people about exemptions because why would they yeah, <laughs> it takes right. away the revenue they are supposed to collect they are very comfortable with collecting revenue mm-hmm. even though you could have got the exemption so there are tax exemptions that some Ugandans could qualify for Mm. The problem is there is lack of knowledge about right. them. The result is that it becomes discriminatory in application. Mm. It is those who have access to the knowledge, those who have access to the people who have the knowledge, or those who can access the, the revenue authority who know how to write, what right. to write, who to write to, and when they apply, how to, to convince that you, you would actually think, make sense. You would think today things have been digitalized because of the transition that happened recently. There, there has been an effort at that, but this particular process has remained a manual one. There are some exemption applications which are online, like the ones that uh, NGOs qualify for are done online. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, under a different provision of the law. But the, these ones for investor incentives are manual. Mm-hmm. And uh, the result is that it's a very slow process. Right. And one that that is still confusing to the taxpayer, and one that, to my mind, is is not one I would consider an objective at all. I right. think it involves high levels of discretion. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was there, if an exemption application came to me, and if it, the same application went to another person, we could end up with different results. I could say I'm granting it. The other person could say they won't. And why? Because of how maybe how strict we choose to be about certain things. Yeah. And that level of discretion brings in high chances of rent-seeking and right. questionable incentives are built for the officers who are handling these processes. Right. So it's still something that has lots of, of question marks. There is no objectivity to my mind. And there is what we found. There is a great deal of discrimination that two persons who yeah. seemingly meet the same criteria, mm. one will benefit, the other one will not benefit. Or one benefits quickly because maybe the exemption is processed quickly while the other one can wait. Some exemption applications have waited for years. There are people who applied in 2019 and they received their responses in 2022. That's a lot of information. I can imagine the bureaucracies then take even longer if you know people who have to decide on something are not on the same page. You spoke about information earlier and I would just like to know research you carried out. How did you ensure the accuracy and validity of that data and analysis? We used largely publicly available reports, mm. uh, despite the fact that um, Ronald and I both worked in the URA for ethical reasons and uh, also professional reasons. We didn't use any sort of insider information. Mm-hmm. The, our main sources of information were public reports. These are parliament committee reports, parliament hansards, the tax expenditure reports put out by the Ministry of Finance yes. and uh, the URA performance reports. Mm. So all these are publicly available information and we would presume the accuracy on the fact that even those who put the, the reports out also had uh, verified the information first. Mm. So it is the best possible information one can access. We mm. also did interviews with key informants, some uh, managers at the Uganda Revenue Authority, people at the Ministry of Finance, and uh, people in the practice, the audit firms and law firms, in order to, 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 to get information regarding the practice. So even though I had seen, for example, aspects of the, of the practice, I still wanted to see what it's like from the other side. Those who had applied for these exemptions, what had they gone through? What, how did they find the process? What were the challenges they faced? And so we sort of double verified from each different, different persons who gave us the information. Any limitations to your study? Yeah, there were quite a number. Uh, one was... That great difficulty in accessing 
information. Uh, I think there is a big problem of information access. Uh, the information is not readily made available. Yeah. Uh, for example, there are committee reports which we couldn't access mm-hmm. going back a number of years. So for, for, for some of them where you can't find the actual committee report, we had to look for the hazard in parliament where the committee report was read. Unfortunately, in, the, in parliament, they only read part of the report. So we could only use the information that was read out in Parliament yeah. to fill in the, the gaps and that we were having. And that made it a bit somewhat inadequate. Oh, we also used budget speeches. And now this would be a surprise probably to many people. Finding the budget speech of, say, 1997 is not very easy. You will not find some of these things online. Even as far just like 2004 budget speech can mm. be very tricky to find. So we had challenges getting much of that information. Then even the people we interviewed, of course, there was a hesitation to give us some information once they knew what the purpose was for. So it was uh, a bit challenging. What are the implications? Because you found out a lot of amazing stuff that you just told us now. What were the implications of your findings for, say, URA or the tax practice or tax policy? We found that... uh, the tax exemption process access for these to these tax holders was largely discriminatory. Mm-hmm. We found it there were scenarios we found where from the twenty uh, fourteens around twenty fourteen, Sembule uh, and if those who are old enough may remember a company, Sembule sought to to benefit from an exemption, saying that uh, its competitors were all benefiting from exemptions. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is around twenty twelve. They wrote to Parliament. And uh, in 2014, they closed business because they said they couldn't compete anymore. Mm-hmm. The taxes were too much when their competitors are not paying. So it was discriminatory. We found it was opaque, an opaque process where most people don't know what's going on. In fact, the interesting thing was even at some of the people involved in the processes are not clear on what, what exactly this criteria criteria. Say, uh, one of the things I told you that would arrive at different positions when looking at exemptions, mm-hmm. if you asked one officer, what are the requirements? What documents should I bring? They could list some and another one lists different documents mm. because they choose to emphasize different things. It's a very strange and opaque process. Yeah. And then we also found that the provisions of the law themselves are quite ambiguous. It is unclear. In fact, it is it's depending on how you read it, it has different meanings. Yeah. Because it has been amended frequently. I told you uh, 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021. And 2022, each year, those provisions have been amended. So actually, this I think is the first year when they're not amending them. Uh, they're only amending the one in excise duty. So they have been ch- changed so many times yeah. and brought all kinds of meanings. So it's yeah. no longer clear what the provisions actually cater for. Has the URA uh, received a copy of this? I can assume it's one of your target audience. <laughs> who, are, who are the beneficiaries of this report? And is it yes. in a way changing things because you have uh, suggestions in here? Yeah, my I've I've given um, copies. I sent copies to permanent secretary of uh, Ministry of Finance. I sent copies to the head of the there's a, 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 a something called the domestic revenue mobilization in uh, in Ministry of Finance. So I sent a copy. He responded very positively. The head mm-hmm. he was very actually very positive and very excited about it. Okay. Uh, the Director of Economic Affairs uh, at URA, I've given copies to the unit I used to work in, the heads of the unit, uh, lots of people. Then they what recommendations of, were you making in there? Uh, the first recommendation I made was regarding uh, the exemptions. I recommended them to be removed from the law mm-hmm. so that they could no longer, because when you look at it, there's no clear cost benefit. That challenge still remains. The current ambiguity 
the, the problems that are around the tax exemptions would be better if they went back to the, the initial position of expense-based, allow right. people to expense. Uh, you know, if someone buys a, a machine worth a million dollars, then he expenses a million dollars, mm. as opposed to someone saying that once you invest $10 million, you don't pay taxes or 10 years. It's, it's, yeah. there is no, it's better when you're tied specifically to the direct investment. Solomon just said, don't think that this information is only for foreigners. It's also for you, Ugandan. Yes. And, and for the Ugandans, the threshold is much lower. Maybe because yeah. I keep talking about millions of dollars. And the, the law actually talks about the threshold in dollars. That's maybe another challenge. Parliament yeah. has actually yeah. raised that as a question. But for Ugandan, it is $150,000. Think of $150,000 if you're investing upcountry, 50 kilometers from the boundaries of Kampala. Yeah. So it's it's uh, it's somewhat uh, at, at lower. Exciting. Earlier, the start of the conversation, you mentioned about other papers that develop from this one. Any future research? What can we look forward to from you? We're going to do more on uh, the tax holidays. There's a lot going on. If you read the paper, you'll see we discuss so many issues about them. So we are narrowing down specifically on the the, the, the question of transparency. Mm. We have a paper we're, we're working on. Uh, actually, with the guidance of uh, the, the, the team at ICTD, mm-hmm. uh, to narrow it down specifically to trans- the transparency question: uh, uh, Is there sufficient transparency, and how can we make the exemptions more transparent? Mm-hmm. There, there are still some exemptions that are not clear at all. There, there is a provision of the law in the Tax Procedures Code Act that allows the minister to pay taxes on behalf of taxpayers. That was now introduced. Previously, it wasn't in the law. Now it was introduced. That provision remains there without any limitation. There is no basis on which the minister chooses. He, basically, he can pay taxes for on my behalf if he chooses or on any other investors. If you recall the saga, those who recall that saga of uh, that Italian, what was that company called? Well, for the hospital. The, the hospital as well. That's the one in Luboa, okay. but then, also the, the one of coffee. Coffee, yes. Coffee, yeah. Yes, that coffee saga. Benedict. Yes. The provision on which the minister was basing, he, 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 the, the, the agreement was based on some of the provisions I've mentioned in the different laws, but the final uh, provision on which he was basing to give those generous exemptions was the one in the Tax Procedures Code Act that allows him to pay on tax, taxes on behalf of the taxpayer. So mm-hmm. he, that's why he could waive any tax. When, they, when the minister says you will not pay taxes, they, what they usually, on, on things which are not provided for in the law, they, it just means I will pay taxes on your behalf. That's what's mm-hmm. given. Anything coming up in monitoring and evaluation? The reason why I don't focus so much on that, there's there been a number of studies. There's a tax expenditure governance framework mm-hmm. that has been developed my doubt is that it will actually be implemented. I'm almost sure it won't. Mm-hmm. I, I, I worked in government long enough and I saw yeah. these things. Yeah. <laughs> there is, which should ideally control for the monitoring and evaluation. Now, that, frame, that expansion governance framework, if implemented, it would be great. In fact, mm-hmm. if implemented, it would, be, it would be the best possible monitoring and evaluation tool. And so if I did research now on that, all I can do is say the same thing is, you know, create the same from which you've created. That's that's what I would recommend. The problem is now the implementation, which needs a great deal of political will, a lot of amendments to the law, putting controls, needs people whom I have not yet met yeah. uh, to, to be the ones in charge of those processes. Okay, Solomon, we could go on and on about uh, the tax holidays in Uganda, but thank you so much for taking time. Our very last question, which is a golden question, we like to ask every one of our guests that comes onto the episode. How do you think we're going to achieve a middle-class economy by 2040? A very, very good question. My thinking would be if people sort of look less to government 
and mm. more to themselves. I I worked in government and, I, and government is necessary and it's a good thing and we need it. You know, you can't have a country without a government, but I don't think there's any government in the world that can, just that because of the natural, natural of the incentives it creates when you're working there, that can, it does not, doesn't pull towards uh, efficiency. It will never be efficient enough. It will never, it, it, it largely, I would say, it just needs to get out of the way and let people work. Uh, if people want to grow um, their businesses, they need to do it out, outside of the dependency on, on government and uh, focusing more on, on doing the work themselves. Uh, one of the challenges I saw was people would, would demand so much from government eh, in terms of expenditure. And it's those demands on the expenditure side that influence the tax side. The, the people may find some of the tax policies bizarre, but the government people are being very rational because the, the pressure on the expenditure side is so great. All kinds of demands. Anytime someone makes a demand and says, you know, pay doctors' salaries, you know you're also asking for that money to come from somewhere. Yeah. It's not going to come from heaven. Yeah. And we can talk about corruption. We can talk about all these things. They're just, a, they, they, for me, they are part of the, they're inbuilt in the system. Mm. I see a question of degree and globally to me, but I think it's just a question of degree that can management of some of those things. The, I think people focusing on their own uh, abilities and, and uh, trying to do things on their own. Government needs to be an enabler because you find that people who have just businesses that are starting out are expected to pay a lot of taxes that they don't end up surviving the first year or the first two years. Yeah, very true. Now, incentives like those ones are... Um, can be provided. They're already there. Some of them exist. It's just, again, the ignorance bit. Like I said, taxpayer education in the hands of URA will never be genuine. They will, for a number of reasons. You have no They're reason always, to, give, to give people yeah. information. Always biased yeah. on their interest. Yeah, on the collection side. Yeah, you're emphasizing the aspects of collection. So you, you should not pay tax until you're making actual profit, real, yes. you know, the real kind of profit. And yet, and that's what the law provides. But because of different kinds of pressures, that will come in, they're, they're, th they're threatening emails you may receive from the URA, text messages, phone calls, visits, all those things will pressurize you until you begin to believe you have to pay something right now and then you'll be forced to pay. I would say for that, they just need more information. If And if people take more interest in tax matters, yeah. uh, more information will be made available because we, we, as of now, few people are generating that information and publicizing it because people have not shown so much interest. But if the, the public wants that, wants that information, it will be made available uh, coming from other sources like the URA, but even much broader, better sources, the universities, the civil society organizations, the audit firms. Mm. More and more people will be making this information available. Amazing. Thank you so much, Solomon. It's been wonderful having you here. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation, give us your rating on any of the players and subscribe and follow other episodes to come. Is there a report you'd like us to bring to audio form? Send us its link to onuganda at gmail.com.